Well, today, if you missed last week, you missed one of my historical introductions to a new book. And you can go back and watch that if you missed it. But today is going to be our first study, uh, our first full study in the letter of James. Last week, we only looked at verse 1 and 2, which basically says this letter is written by James. And it also says, and it was written to some people that had scattered. That's all that we learned. And, and as I told you last week, the direction that we're going to take as we look through the letter of James is we're going to approach the letter by looking at, at several of the ways that James challenges us to have a practical faith. A practical faith. A faith that isn't just philosophical or intellectual. It's not just a faith that's just traditional, just kind of the religious duties that we go through. But what he says is, I want you to have a practical faith. A faith that affects the way you live your everyday. The way you live life. The way you talk to people. The way you think about things. The way you spend your money. The way you spend your time. A, a very practical faith. And as we learned last week, James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he was also the half-brother of Jesus. He was the one who wrote this letter specifically to these Jewish Christians that had moved out of Jerusalem into the surrounding regions all around. And many of them had likely left Jerusalem because of persecution and some of the pressures that had been put on them because they were Jews who were converting into Christians. And we read back in the book of Acts that in Acts chapter 8, where there, it, it says it was a severe persecution. People were really getting hassled for being Christians. And because of that, they said, we're out of here. We don't need to stay in Jerusalem in the big city. Let's move back to where our family was originally from. Let's pick up everything and let's, let's get to some place where we don't have to feel that and feel all that persecution anymore. And as they relocated to these new villages and towns, what they found was they'd still encounter new trials, new difficulties, Right? A lot of times, you see it right now, um, a lot of times we think in our minds, if I just moved to some other place, it would all be better. It's all better in Arizona, or it's all better in New Mexico, or Hawaii, or wherever it is in your mind, you're like, oh, well, let's just go for it, because then everything will be great. The grass is always greener, right? But what you find, and for the people that do that, that they say, well, we're just picking up and we're going, what you find is there's still problems there too, they might be different problems. You might exchange this set of issues. San Diego's so expensive to live. If I move to Kansas, it's way cheaper. You're right. But do you know what snow is? That's another issue that you deal with there, right? So there's all kinds of, of things that happen. But that's what happened with these people. They said, let's get out from under the persecution in Jerusalem. Let's go someplace where it's easy to live. And then they get out there and they find there's other trials and other struggles and other difficulties that come their way. And so James begins this letter by specifically addressing these difficulties. All right? So let's read verses 2 to 4 here together in James chapter 1. Here's what he says. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers. And actually, I'm going to pause you here before we go any farther. James specifically, I want to, to set a little footnote here for you. Um, James is one of these letters, and part of it is because he was a Jewish leader speaking to Jewish people in all of the Jewish cultures. 
And with that, if you don't know much about the Jewish culture, it is a very, um, it is a very male-dominated way of things. All right? In some cultures, in some traditions, there are uh, matriarchy types of, uh, of cultures where mothers have a very high place in, in what's going on. There's other cultures that are very um, full of a patriarchy kind of society. In the Jewish culture, it was very much that way. And in ancient languages, in, in Hebrew is one of those, even though this was in Greek, um, the, the, the gender-specific nouns and pronouns that you come across in the Bible, there are certain places where it's very specific and very clear. And then there's other places where anytime you have a group of people, male or female together, you all just refer to them as men. All right, and, and even the, the, the language itself as you decline it, right? You may know the difference in, if you know Spanish, you know that there's certain endings that are male endings and female endings, and that's how that works. Well, um, in, in many of those languages, uh, ancient languages, and even languages today, when you've got a group together, it's male. And in this letter, and in many places in the Bible, it sounds like it's only applicable to men. That's why I bring this up. You might hear that and say, well, brother, I'm obviously not a brother, <laughs> Um, but ladies, I don't want you to allow that to make you think that you're out of the focus of these passages. You don't get off the hook. You could say, well, he's only talking to men about that. No, he, he, he's not. And, and let's be very clear. The Bible does not eliminate gender. All right. It doesn't. It celebrates gender, but it also keeps it where it belongs, which is underneath, underneath the greater reality of who we are in Christ. Okay, uh, in, for clarity, uh, you know, there may be spots where I will add a little parenthesis to what I'm reading. Okay, and it's not because I'm trying to rewrite the word of God. It's because I'm conveying the meaning of what was written. Okay, um, in, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says very clearly, look, in Christ, there's no longer male or female. We're all one in Christ. Now, does he say that because you become a Christian, you're no longer a male or female? No, the big reality is we are in Christ. Underneath that are things like gender, okay? And in our society, especially now with all the conversation of gender, people want to say, this is the most important thing about who you are, what your gender is or isn't or what is unknown. No, guys, <laughs> gender matters, but it's underneath the, the umbrella of Christ, okay? So in passages that are gender specific, uh, for instance, in the Bible, it says, Husband, lo husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? Those are very clearly for husbands and for wives. And that is going to say the same. But in the places where it is not um, meant to be specific, we can describe it that way. Okay, so all, that's a long side note to say, listen, when he says, count it all joy, my brothers, that includes you sisters, okay, as well. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay. Here's what you've got to look at as we start looking at these verses. And, and some of these verses are very well known. You may not be familiar with this part of the Bible, but a lot of people look at these verses and think about these verses. Why? Because what did he just say? Count it joy when you experience trials, struggles, difficulty. Life is hard. 
I don't think I'm the first person to tell you that. Life is hard. And no one is exempt from trials in this life. Nobody. No matter what family you were born into or where you were raised or how you were raised, no matter where you went to school or if you didn't go to school, no matter what church you were part of, no matter how talented you are, no matter how many lucky breaks you've had, no no matter how much money you have or how many people you know, everyone will have trials in their lives. Now, for many of us, we think, well, yeah, but there's some people that have a lot less trials than others. Okay, there may be some of that. But then there's also the flip side of that. There are other people that it seems like life is one series of trials for them, right? Everyone, though, will have trials. And James is going to challenge us here in these verses how to think about the way that we respond to those trials, specifically as Christians. And that's who he's addressing here when he says, brothers and sisters, count it joy when you deal with trials. Count it joy when you deal with trials. I told you last week, I said, look, James is going to be bold. Some of the things that James says, we don't want to hear. And the way James says it is usually right in your face. He's just going to say, yeah, you've got a problem. Count it as joy. what What does that mean, James? How am I supposed to deal with this? Well, what we said was we would have practical ways of living out our faith. But what we start here in James chapter 1, what we start with is something that seems impractical. Because what immediately he tells us is, look, have joy when you're in a trial. You're like, wait a minute, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. That doesn't seem to to work. It, It collides. They collide together. We don't expect joy with trials. We could say joy with victories, joy with successes, All right, I can celebrate that. That sounds good. But joy in trials, struggles, difficulty, that's not our natural response. We don't think of trials being met together with joy. All right, so how do we understand that? The first thing we have to understand is the way the Bible describes and defines joy and the, the fact that it is different than happiness. Joy is different than happiness, okay? And they aren't interchangeable. When we talk about it in in normal language, we kind of will mix those things up. Oh, I was full of joy because things worked out in in some way that I like. All right, That, that could be true, but they're not interchangeable in the Bible. Happiness changes with our current circumstances and feelings. Happiness can come and it can go all in the same day, all in the same few minutes. Happiness moves a lot. Joy, however, is a deeper level of contentment and peace that can stay constant even as the things around us shift. All right, one way to understand the difference between joy and happiness is actually even look at the flip side of that and look at the difference between grief and sadness. Okay, sadness is like happiness. It changes. It goes. I can, I can go to Lolita's and get a burrito with not enough guacamole in it. That will make me sad. Okay, but I'm not going to be grieved because I didn't get quite enough guacamole. Some of you might. You can go back and get some more. All right, but that's different than something that really deeply impacts me and pulls me down to a level of grief. All right, it's different. It's the same thing with joy. I can be happy that, whoa, I got extra of guacamole. (laughs) 
I can be, that can make, give me some happiness, but it's not going to change my deep underlying joy. All right? That's, that's what's being described here. So, so what is the word that James uses here? He says count it as joy when you face trials. All right. What, what, what he's, he's talking about here as we look at this is this deeper thing, this deep thing that goes underneath a lot of the circumstances of life. Joy was one of the things that Jesus came to bring us. And if you look at the life of Jesus, you realize Jesus faced a lot of trials. In fact, Isaiah the prophet who came hundreds of years before Jesus in Isaiah 53, 3 actually said he's going to be a man, the Messiah, Jesus. When he comes, he's going to be a man who's acquainted with sorrows and grief. He's going to have a rough go of it in life. And as we see, he did. I mean, how many of us have had to been nailed to a cross and hung there to die, right? Jesus experienced deep, deep trials. However... He was full of joy. He was full of joy. Those who met him knew this. Jesus himself said joy was one of the things that he came to the earth to bring. In John 15, 9 to 11, he said this. He said, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you. Listen. That my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be full. As Christians, we have the opportunity to be people of joy. And that was Jesus' hope for us. That we would be people of joy even when the trials come. Even when the struggles come. Even when life does not go the way we want it to go. And we've already established the fact that it's not going to go the way you want it to go all the time. That's part of being human. There are going to be losses. There are going to be defeats. There are going to be failures. That's part of life. Life is hard. But you can still be people of joy. So how is it that we actually do this? Because here's what you need to understand. James is not just commanding us to put on a happy face every time something bad happens to us. Oh, it doesn't matter what happens, Christian. As long as you're smiling, then everybody will know it's a Christian. Oh, you broke your ankle? Well, smile. It's all right. You're a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, stuff's going to come that's going to make you sad. There's going to be things that are, are truly difficult. But here's what he's teaching us to do. And this is what we see as we dig a little deeper into this passage. What he's teaching us is to look beyond the momentary trial to the glorious work that can happen through it. Okay, Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. He said, so we do not lose heart. He's talking about when we're in the middle of hard places. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, our soul, is being renewed day by day. For this, he calls it light momentary affliction. If you remember Paul, the guy was beaten all the time, thrown into jail many times, starving to death, shipwrecked. He's got a whole list that you can go through. It's pretty, pretty incredible. He says, but these light momentary afflictions, it's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're moving. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 
So here's what we see about this. Trials will come, but we can have joy because of the results that they can produce. Every trial can grow our faith. Every trial can grow our faith. Now, some trials that come into our lives are a little more direct than others. I'm not talking about guacamole here. <laughs> I'm talking about there are some things that, that are heavier and, and, and are serious. Some trials come across our lives that make us wonder about the goodness of God. And it makes you question that. Or about his love for you. Things happen in people's lives that rightly make us think, God, do you even know that I am here on this planet? How could you let this happen? How could this occur in my life? These can be real trials. It might make you question his control over the world. It's like, there's no way that can happen if you are in control. Or your own salvation. Well, maybe the reason this is happening to me is because I'm not one of those saved people anyway. That's just what God saves for the people he loves. And it's obviously not me. Trials can shake the core of what you believe. And I know that it sounds terrible, but what James is saying is, but even those can have good results in your life. Look what this one commentator says about this. He says, God always tests us to bring out the best. Satan tempts us to bring out the worst. The testing of our faith proves that we're truly born again. He says, the, the reason that God allows some of these things to happen in your life is because he's still going to turn them around for good. Romans 8.28 is still real. He is going to work through those things, hard things, terrible things in some cases, but he will work through those things. And our faith shapes how we live our lives. And, and what we believe affects what we do and how we do it. And remember what he says there? He says, look, you count it as joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When our faith is put to the test, it actually strengthens our understanding of our faith. It lets us see what our faith is made of. It tests the limits. All right? Let me describe it this way. Think, think about you go to the doctor and the doctor says, hey, something's, something's wrong. I can't just tell by looking at you. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's wrong, but we know something's wrong. What are they going to say next? We need to run some tests. We need to test some things to see what's really going on. We need to try to figure out, we need to look for some deeper indicators to understand where things are at with your health. When our faith is tested, it's the same sort of a thing. These tests come to say, hey, where's your faith really? Where's it at? Where are the places that it's strong? Where are the places that it's weak? What needs to happen next? And, and you know what? That's kind of how we function in the world. We test our limits. We like to test our limits. I, I recently saw this, and some of you have probably seen it too. Uh, there was a National Geographic documentary about somebody testing their limits. Okay, there's this rock climber named Alex Honnold who got it in his mind to climb El Capitan in Yosemite. All right, I have a picture. El Capitan, if you've ever been there before. It's this incredible 3,000-foot granite cliff. All right, and so this rock climber, you know, professional rock climber, he's like, I'm going to climb that thing. 
okay, that's, that sounds impressive. That sounds good. You know, that's, that's big. I don't want to climb it, but you, you're a pro rock climber. It would be good to say I climbed El Cap. Okay, but we're talking about testing limits here. Lots of people have climbed El Cap. So what this guy decided to do was he said, I'm going to climb El Cap with no ropes. No ropes. I'm just going to climb this thing. And if I make it, I make it. If I don't make it, well, you don't make it. Right? So the guy did it. And there's, here's a picture. This thing's called Free Solo. Yes, he's, I don't know, 2,000 some feet in the air right now. Climbing this thing with no ropes. Now that's stupid. I'm not telling you to do that. <laughs> um, I, I watched it by myself. I told my wife after. I'm like, you don't want to watch that. Like I thought she might want to watch it. You don't want to watch that. You're just going to be saying the whole time, the guy's an idiot. Like what? One slip? You're done for. But what's, what was the drive? The drive for him was, I want to test my limit. I want to know, can I do it? Can I push myself to this? No, nobody else has done this. That sounds great. Let me go for it. And I understand that. No, most of us don't want to know the answer, even if it is deadly. I was one of those strange kids in school growing up that I liked tests. I was that guy. But, but even I don't want my faith to be put to the test. I don't want to be hung out there to dry, hanging out over the middle of nothing and wondering where God's at. I'm like, Lord, no, I don't want my faith to be tested. Just stay right beside me. You and I will just walk through this life and walk right into the pearly gates of the end, right? That's how I choose it. But he loves us more than that and he wants us to grow. And James here tells us to not only endure the trials, but to find joy in them because God is at work building our faith, even in the struggle. And he tells us there a specific reason to embrace and even enjoy the testing of our faith. He says it produces steadfastness. Now, if I was to bet, I would bet that none of us use the word steadfastness in a conversation this week. All right, what does steadfastness mean? The dictionary definition here is fixed in direction, focused in one direction, firm in purpose, unwavering. That's what he says about our faith. Our faith can become that way. We talked last week about roots and foundations, that as we grow in our spiritual maturity, those things go deeper. Why do they go deeper? To hold us in place, to let us be steadfast, to be firm in our resolve. And when our faith is tested, when these trials come our way, we're strengthened in the process. I, w- I was thinking about back on my own life and some of the, the places that I can recognize where I went through a trial in life and I realized on the other side of that, my faith was strengthened through it, all right? Um, and in, in 2013, Aaron and I went through a, um, a bit of a, uh, well, for us, it was a bit of a financial disaster. Let's put it that way. Where basically, I mean, we never went without. We were never at a spot where we were homeless or hungry or anything like that. But we still, at that time, in in 2013, we lost everything that we had saved for the 13 years of our marriage up to that point. And it was just a financial blow to us. And, and, And when that happened, when that took place, before it happened, I would have thought, hey, my faith is pretty strong in the areas of finances, believing that God will provide for us and take care for us, take care of us. I trust God in that. I can point to some verses in scripture that talk about that. So I believe that until the trial came along. And until that cushion 
got wiped out. Then all of a sudden I realized, whoa, my faith is not so strong in some of these things that I thought I believed. I realized that I have to grow in that. My faith is weak in this area. And as we walked with God through that time, and we did experience his provision, my faith was deepened and strengthened. So much now that I, I, and admittedly, I had more fear than joy at the time. I wish I could tell you, but I just walked through with a smile on my face. No, no, it was scary. But I hope that as I've grown in trusting the Lord in these places, that I've grown in my faith and I can handle those things with more joy in the future. Now, do you understand why that, why steadfastness would be so valuable to your life? Think about the world around us right now. Think about how people are feeling with what's happened in the past couple years of life. People do not feel fixed or secure or unwavering right now. That's not what we find. The world around us is struggling to make sense of things. And we're all looking for something stable to hold on to. Let's face it, security and predictability are two of the things that comfort us most as human beings. We like to have that. It's, it, it, it makes us feel solid. And when those things aren't in place, we begin to feel vulnerable and anxious. But what James is saying is, hey, as your faith grows, as you become more, and more steadfast in your faith, it provides an anchor point. It provides some stability and some things that you can trust in that are beyond the circumstances of this life. All right? In Hebrews 6.19, it says this. It says, we, talking to believers, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. What's it he's referring to there? He's talking about Jesus and the work that Jesus did by, by ripping the, the curtain that separated humans from God. And he says, now because you have Jesus, you now have access to God, the one that holds this planet together. The one that is the creator of all things. Yes, those things get really tangled and messy and scary. But you have access to the one that holds all that together. We have a hope anchored in Jesus. And a steadfast faith gives us confidence and security. A faith that doesn't move. A faith that cannot be shaken. And if we have that kind of faith, he tells us there at, at the end of verse 4... It's as if we are perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, look, if you go through the process, if you allow God to take your faith and expand it and stretch it and strengthen it and make it go deep, it's going to be like you're, you're perfect. You're going to be complete, whole. That's what we want, isn't it? I know it is. And we often view trials in our lives as God's way of punishing us when in fact, he's using trials to perfect us. I will say this about it. We still are going to need encouragement when we come to those places of trial. So you might think about this and say, okay, Brett told me that James is going to talk about becoming mature in faith. So if I become mature in faith, then I assume that anytime a trial comes in my life, I'm good to go. Because I'm so anchored and I'm so secure and I'm so strong and steadfast in my faith that I don't need anybody else. No, it doesn't work that way. 
No matter how mature you are in your faith, you're still going to need others. Even with that deep underlying joy, times of trial and testing are hard. It doesn't mean that you're not a person of faith. Lean on the faith of your brothers and sisters in Christ during those times. That's part of why it's so important that we have each other. For many of us over the past five years of being a church, we've gone through hard things in our lives. We have had family members pass away. We've had losses of jobs. We've had serious illnesses, heavy news that has come through. But for many of you, you've experienced what it's like to be able to rest on the faith and friendship and connections of other people in this community. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's why we're here for each other. We're called to weep with those who weep and mourn with uh, those who mourn, but also to rejoice with those who rejoice. So, as he goes on here, and what if we don't know how to let that have its effect? Because he says, look, when the trial comes and you're holding on to joy and, and the steadfastness is being built, you know, what happens when a trial comes along that just confuses you? And you're like, I don't even know how to make this work. I can believe that you're working in it, but I don't see it, Lord. I don't understand. What if we don't know how to handle the trial? He says there in verse 5, and he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God wants you to succeed in this. Sometimes we feel like if a trial comes along that we're going to be abandoned by God. And that he's just going to let the trial happen and then see, well, did they make it or not? Well, that's not how it works. He wants you to succeed and he will provide for us the things that we need in this life. We learned that back when we did 2 Peter, our last book that we looked at. 2 Peter 1.3 says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have to have God's wisdom in this life to make it and to make the most of the trials that come our way. But what this verse tells us is he will generously give the wisdom that we need when we ask him for it. And I think that this is one of the places that we, we make a mistake when we come to a trial in our life. Because I think that at least I've seen it in me, and if I'm honest, I've seen it in some of you too, (laughs) Instead of going directly to the Lord with it when a trial comes up, we start going through our whole list of defense mechanisms. Oh, I'll try that. I'll talk to this person. I'll do that. I'll say this. I'll buy that. I'll change this. I'll try to do this. We try to work everything in our own capacity that we possibly can. And then when all else fails, I guess I should go to God. (laughs) Right? It's what we, we tend to do. Instead of going directly to him and ask for his wisdom, we, we try every solution. It's really a backwards thinking. So when we, we talk about the practical faith, what James tells us here, one of our first lessons of practical faith through the book of James is pray. <laughs> Ask God for the things that you need. And that includes wisdom of knowing how to deal with the trials that come through our lives. And then he goes on in verse six, and he says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is an important verse to understand properly. And I'm glad that we're here to talk about it today. 
Because some people misunderstand this verse. And it actually, instead of encouraging them and strengthening them in their faith, it causes them to start having a lot of fears and worries. Okay? Some people think that if, if when we're talking about faith and coming to the Lord, they say, all right, if I can just mentally psych myself up to believe something in faith and not have any doubts, then God is obligated to answer what I've asked. Because he says here that I'm supposed to ask in faith with no doubting. So I'll just get to the spot where I'm like, no, don't think about that. Don't think about that. Oh, it's faith, pure faith. I'm asking, I'm needing, I'm wanting, and I'm not going to turn my face away in any way until you answer it, God. That's not what's being talked about here. And, and unfortunately, what that does is, when God says no to things, we can't take that as an answer. No, I had faith. Or what's worse, you have other people say, well, you obviously didn't have enough faith. You prayed for that to happen, it didn't. You didn't have faith. Because if you'd had faith right here, it says, you know. No, that's not what's being described. He's actually not even describing a Christian struggling with doubt. James is contrasting the difference between one who is in faith, as he says there at the beginning, let him ask in faith, versus one who is in doubt. It's two different people in two different places. Okay? It's one who is trusting that God is who he says he is, a generous giver, versus one who does not trust in God, but is still looking for something to grab onto. The word translated here as double-minded can also be translated as double-souled, like a person with two different souls. And to be double-souled is to question whether God is true or not. And that person can be led astray. Later in in chapter 4, verse 8, it gives even more insight to this verse because James gives us clarity on on who this is and by equating a sinner with a double-minded person. All right, James 4, 8 says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what he's talking about. He's saying, look, if you're going to be a person that's going to ask, be a person of faith. What he says is, look, this isn't who you are. You're not a doubting person. You're not a double-minded person, a two-souled person. You are a person who is in Christ. You're a person of faith. So ask in faith of who you are and, and understand that you are one who believes. So believe. So we ask in faith without doubting. And then in verse 9 he says, And let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What is he talking about here? Well, in the context of what we see, what James is describing is the fact that we are all brought to an equal place under God. All of us. I already told you at the beginning of this message that we're all going to deal with trials. But what we're also seeing here is no matter what circumstances we even find ourselves in in this life, we're all brought together under God. Now, in the ancient world that James was writing to, the poor and the rich, the difference, the space between the poor and the rich would have been even greater than it is today because the poor truly had nothing and the rich had everything. And I know we can see those those things in our culture, but the space was very obvious. But as the children of God, 
in the family of God, we have all become royalty. We are all sons and daughters of the king. And so what James is describing here, he's saying the lowly, that's the poor, the poor have a new sense of their value. They're boasting in this exaltation. Whoa, I'm in Christ. But at the same time, the rich also have a new view of their value. They are brought, brought down in that. The word he uses is humiliated in that. Why? Because the poor realize that they aren't just throwaway humans to be exploited by lords and masters, but they're God's children. And the rich understand that the value that the world places on them because they're rich, because of their possessions, because of the positions that they have, they realize, yeah, but those things are temporary. Those things fade away. Those things aren't going to stay. They, and they ultimately devalue those things. They say, no, it's, it's all about who we are in God. Both can boast not in what they have or what they don't have on this earth, but in who they have become in Jesus, a new creation. Galatians 6, 14 and 15 says it this way. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's the part that matters. And when we recognize this truth, it helps us find contentment right where we are. This is all in context of trials, of struggles, of difficulty. He says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. God loves his children, rich and poor. And I'm not even talking only about dollars. This isn't just about finances when he says that. He's, it, it, not at all. Some are rich in talents and opportunities. Others are poor in health and influence. These are not a reflection of God's love for you. Either way. Why? Because what do we know about God's plan on earth right now in this fallen state? He's called us to go out into the world, all through the world, everywhere in the world, to the uttermost parts of the earth, every country, every class, every race, every industry, every marketplace. Christians don't look the same, don't even think the same. We don't have the same shared identical experiences, but we all share one Father, one faith. One baptism, one spirit, one savior. And as believers, we will all share in the trials of this life, but we also share in the victory to come. And that's what he says here in our last verse, verse 12. He says, blessed is the man or woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This image here is, is a, the image of a, a victor being crowned at the end of their race. They go through all the trials, all the difficulty, and they come out to the end and they're victorious. And they're given this, this crown, this reward, this prize at the end of the race. And I know that's hard for us to remember sometimes. That's what James is sa says here. He says, don't forget who you are. Yes, trials are going to come. Yes, it's going to be difficult. But you've got a joy underneath all this because you know what's happening at the end. What's happening at the end is God is going to do what God said he was going to do. 
He is going to rescue you. He is going to give you eternal life. He is going to recreate heaven and earth into a place that is, has no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more tears, no more illnesses and sickness and death. It's all going to be made new and made right. And I understand that it's hard for us to remember that sometimes. I honestly think part of it is that we just live life so fast-paced that it's really hard for us to actually process what's even happening in our lives, much less think about eternity. We're just trying to make it through what's the next thing on my schedule, (laughs) right? So what does James remind us of today? No matter what trials we go through in this life, we will ultimately be blessed. And we can hold on to that and it can give us hope. God has promised to give us eternal life. In 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, it says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So, the word for you today, remain steadfast in the trials that will come your way. But keep your eyes on God who loves you and is watching over you. Remembering that one day you will receive the crown of life that will never fade. Amen. Let's pray together.